On this Good Friday morning, let me read to you the story of what took place on that eventful day from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. And reading from verse 32. As they were on the way, they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene and they forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Then they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means Skull Hill. The soldiers gave him wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. After that they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A signboard was fastened to the cross above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two criminals were crucified with him, their crosses on either side of him, and the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. So you can destroy the temple and build it again in three days. You Can you? You can, if you are the Son of God. Save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of the religious law and the other leaders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the King of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusted God. Let God show his approval by delivering him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the criminals who were crucified with him also shouted the same insults at him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a stick so he could drink. But the rest said, leave him alone. Let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Then Jesus shouted out again and he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead after Jesus' resurrection. They left the cemetery and went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, truly, this was the Son of God. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? What a question to ask. 
How could the death of Christ be related to me when I was not even born at the time? The death of Julius Caesar was a tremendous death in history, but nobody ever asked, were you there when Julius Caesar died? We might well ask, how can the death of someone who died 2,000 years ago affect us today? Let me explain. Time in cosmic events takes on a significance that goes beyond the event itself. Because a thing was done for you before you were born, it is not done any less for you if in point of fact you benefit from it today. Suppose you went to hospital for an operation. Just picture for a moment what that major operation would be like without anaesthetics. But when the doctor says, I'm afraid it must be an operation, you begin to comfort yourself with the thought, well, at least I won't feel it. You think of the discovery of chloroform Sir James Simpson made before you were born. In a real sense, it was a discovery made for you. Just think of other happenings in the past, like the signing of the Magna Carta by King John at Runnymede in 1215, or the first settlement in Australia. These events happened long ago, but they affect us all today. They were in a sense done for us. The Bible explains the meaning and mystery of the cross in these words. Christ Jesus once suffered for us that he might bring us to God. He died for us. Christ Jesus died for us. The other part of the answer lies in who it was that died there on that Good Friday. In the rock opera Jesus Superstar, over and over again the chorus asks, Who are you? The opera concludes with the voice of Judas coming back from the dead and still questioning who Jesus is. Don't get me wrong, says Judas, I only want to know. And then the haunting chorus follows, Jesus Christ Superstar, do you think you're what you say you are? The opera does not supply the answer. It leaves Jesus in the grave. Who is this Jesus? The Bible records that at a specific time in history, at a specific place, in a specific person, God invaded time. The cradle in which Jesus was born was God's Normandy, his beachhead into the human story. God's watermark is woven into the pages of history. Jesus really cried as a hungry boy in the cradle. He really hurt when he cut his finger as a boy in his father's carpenter shop. 
He suffered beyond human imagination when he was nailed to the real rough wood of the cross and warm blood flowed from his torn body. In all of this, God was saying to us, I love you. Even though you've turned from me, I'm going to show you that I still love you so much and I will bring you back to myself. Hubert Simpson has preserved the story of a picture which was painted by special request for the Royal Corps of Signals in order to depict an incident in the First World War. It shows an unarmed linesman away out in no man's land sent out there to repair a broken cable and to restore the interrupted communication. But the picture shows him prostrate and lifeless on the shell-marked ground. His body stretched out in loneliness and solitude. His duty fulfilled with bravery and courage. His two hands were held out before him and the wrists were cold and stiff. But the dying action had been to bring the two ends of the broken cable together. Contact was restored at the cost of his death. And beneath the picture is one caption, the word through. This is what Christ did for us. in his death on the cross. He went out to lay down his life in the no man's land of sin and separation from God. And so we see him this morning crucified and lifeless on the blood-stained cross, his body given for us in sacrifice and suffering, his purpose fulfilled with dying dignity and forgiveness for those who nailed him there. But those arms outstretched in death tell us of the finished task. As there on the cross he opened the way through to God. As the hymn writer once put it, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. So the cross reaches down through the years to us today. Because when it happened, it was done for us. And the man who died on that cross was no ordinary person. As Matthew explains, the Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion said, truly, this was the Son of God. Another issue emerges. Why was the cross necessary? Why could not God forgive without it? The question is often asked, why was it necessary for Jesus, or anyone else for that matter, to die for our sins? If God is our Heavenly Father and we are ready to ask for forgiveness, is that not enough? Why then is it not enough for you and me when we sin merely to repent? Why was someone else, some other action, come between us and God? 
Why should the Bible say Christ Jesus died for our sins? What possible difference could Christ's death make? If we came to God honestly and humbly and said, I've sinned, why is that not sufficient of itself? Now it's important to point out this morning that contrary to to popular opinion, God cannot do anything. Some people say, couldn't God find a way to deal with sin without the cross? After all, God can do anything. A great deal of muddled thinking lies behind the use of that often repeated statement. God cannot contradict his own rationality and, for instance, make a square circle or an aged infant or a one-sided sheet of paper. He cannot deny his own nature and be vindictive or evil or unkind, (coughs) nor could he ever tolerate sin. Between the holy God and sin, then, it can be never any compromise or indulgence or neutrality. Its deadly nature does not allow even God to say, it does not matter. No society could stand where such judgments were common. Justice would cry out against it. Bernard Shaw once remarked, forgiveness is a coward's refuge. We must pay our debts. What Shaw could not see and and thousands like him, that God does not deal lightly with sin in his readiness to forgive us. He bears it himself. The Bible declares, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We've left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. The debt was met in Jesus. What no man could do, this man did. He fought sin at Calvary and defeated it. Sin must always exact its price and someone must pay it. Sin had to be revealed for what it is and the power taken out of it. All talk of God lightly forgiving sin is pure sentimentality. Imagine a judge in the high court hearing a sane man plead guilty of repeated rape and meeting the prisoner's profession of penitence with a kind word and a free pardon. If you're sorry, we'll say no more about it. Be careful in the future. It is verging on blasphemy for any person to look at Christ sweating blood in Gethsemane or dying in agony on the cross and decide that it was all unnecessary. Think of that bright young Count Zinzendorf who initiated the great 
Moravian missionary movement. Brought up as an aristocrat and trained for an influential career in the diplomatic service at the court of Dresden. On a journey to Paris, he found he had to stop to rest his horses in Dusseldorf. And to fill in the time, he walked into the picture gallery. There he caught sight of Stenberg's famous painting of the crucifixion. And he was struck by the lines engraved underneath. All this I did for you. What have you given for me? He had no answer to that question. He was struck silent with a deep sense of shame. The hours passed, the light faded. The time came for the gallery to close. But he stood still face to face with the Son of God. And when night fell, those words had burned their way home into his heart. It was like the dawn of a new day in his soul. And from that hour, heart and life, health and wealth, name and fame, all that he had and all that he was, were cast at the Saviour's feet. When once the vision of the crucified Christ possesses a human being, it is the supreme moment of a lifetime. What is your reaction today to the picture Matthew gives us of Jesus dying on the cross? The two thieves who were crucified alongside Jesus reacted differently from each other. One saw nothing particularly significant in Christ's death. He was not concerned to obtain forgiveness. He scoffed at Jesus, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other saw Jesus' sacrifice as the hope of forgiveness. He protested, don't you fear God even when you're dying? We deserve to die for our evil deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, I assure you, you will be with me today in paradise. In the light of these two differing responses, can I ask you the question that's printed on your response card, which says, if you were to die today, if you were to die today, are you certain you'd go to heaven? Our third and final question on this Good Friday is, how can the death of Christ be relevant to me today? Many years ago, while pastor of our church at Ballarat, a film based on Lloyd Douglas' book, The Robe, was screened in the local theatre. The crucifixion scene from that film has lived indelibly in my mind ever since with Marcellus, the Roman centurion, commander of the fort at Manoa, ordered to conduct the crucifixion. 
Demetrius, his friend, explained later, fortunately he was blind drunk when he did it. A seasoned centurion of the, of Manoa, of the Manoa staff had seen to that. But he was clear enough to realise that he was crucifying an innocent man. And well, as you see, sir, he didn't get over it. He dismisses it from his mind for a while and then it sweeps over him again like a bad dream. He sees the whole thing so vividly that it amounts to acute pain. It is so real to him, sir, that he thinks everybody else must have known something about it and he asks them, were you there? And then he is ashamed that he asked. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Peter, addressing a crowd of people 40 days after Jesus came alive again, said, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by doing wonderful miracles, wonders and signs through him, as you well know. But you followed God's prearranged plan And with the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and murdered him. However, God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life again, for death could not keep its grip on him. So let it be clearly known by everyone in Israel that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and and Messiah. Peter did not mean that they had been literally there on that day, that they had wielded the hammer that drove the nails into his hands. In effect, he was saying the sins which nailed Christ to the cross were the sins you and I commit. And in that sense, I can truly and shamefully say I have crucified the Son of God. I was there when they crucified my Lord. And I was included when he prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There is something to be forgiven in even the best things that I ever do. It would be wrong to pretend that I fully understand the cross even now. It surpasses my reason, though it does not contradict it. It is glorious to know that Christ's sacrifice covers the whole world. The power of sin has been broken. The victim has become the victor. The cross of Jesus, although it seemed a victory for evil, evidenced the final triumph of Christ. The dying Saviour did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. It was a declaration of victory. Subsequently, the resurrection underlined and verified the victory already won. The victory of Christ at Calvary has tremendous relevance for us. The Gospel writers tell us they crucified him there. But the question with which we started, were you there 
when they crucified my Lord, awaits your response. If we ignore the cross and refuse its meaning for us personally, we place ourselves beyond the ability of God to forgive us. It is tragic to remember how many there are who still hear of Jesus Christ and him crucified and still pay no attention. It's almost beyond human belief that men and women can stand beneath the shadow of Calvary today and yet feel unmoved. But the truth never leaves you just where it finds you. A responsibility has been placed on you in this hour. You may never have been conscious of it before. You must choose like Pilate of old what you will do with Jesus. This moment is full of destiny for you, both for this life and eternity. You can leave this Good Friday service, if you will, unmoved, unchanged, even undecided. And that will be to your eternal loss. Or you can say with Marcellus and Count Zinzendorf, I was there too. My sins helped to put him there. I now declare myself a totally committed follower of Jesus Christ. For this man, as the Roman soldier said, is truly the Son of God. Let us share a prayer together. Father, look upon his anointed face And look on us only as seen in him. Look not upon our misgivings of your grace, our prayer so languid, our faith so dim. For between our sins and their reward, we place the cross of Christ our Lord. Our loving Father, Some of us may be speaking to you this morning for the first time. We want you to know how grateful we are to you for loving us so much that you gave the son of your love to the death of the cross. As individuals, we stand at that cross now and ask for your forgiveness for our part in his death. I was there too. My sins he took into his own body on the tree. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. In opening the way through into the Father's presence, I yield my life to you now in return. Please accept me and help me to become totally devoted to you. Thank you for receiving me. Amen.